This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how does Canada's energy network work during times of crisis? Is there a backup plan? Dan McTague joined us to help us understand contingency plans for disasters in Canada, plus the impact of energy infrastructure and everything that goes into what's been happening in BC for Canada. Out in space, the Russians have destroyed some satellites. NASA's not happy about it. It looks like there wasn't a lot of communication between the military and the space agencies. Andrew C. Ferreira explains what the weapon is and how the resulting debris endangered astronauts on the ISS. Are you okay? Also here on the Shift Daily Podcast, are you okay with returning a library book 73 years late? And are you okay with airport security? All of this and more coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. <laughs> Are you okay? All right, we got DJ BK here as well, Brendan Kelly, who is uh, hanging out. Now, uh, I'm going to just sort of a little bit of behind the wizard's curtain. Sheldon is here operating. Brendan is um, actually sitting in the big chair in the big studio. It's yes, good. I feel the all the power. Do you feel the power? I do. All the legends so, uh, that have sat here and then me. Yeah, right? <laughs> So here's the expectation. Since Brendan is doing nothing but sitting there drinking coffee, um, he's going to be the funniest through all this. No pressure. No, no pressure. Yeah. All right. Are you okay with teddy bears? Good one. Uh, Yes, obviously. I think we all have like that one teddy bear. That one. That we we can never forget. It's been mentioned before and you've made fun of mine. Yeah, Swinger. His name is Swinger. Yeah, Swinger the monkey. Um, mm-hmm. Swinger yeah. the monkey. Swinger. Well, I named him when I was th- three years old. I, it's a pretty good I name. We think about it. It's yeah, like Swinger. Okay. Like he's a swinging from tree to tree. Sw- yeah, yeah, I get it. He has a long tail. Yeah. I love that little monkey. I still have him. Yeah, he had no idea what a hedgehog on the front step and the garage door half open meant at the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what about you, BK? You must have a stuffed animal uh, somewhere. I still do Did have you? a stuffed animal. I've, I've talked about him before. I've talked about Larry the llama. Um, and to Ooh, be nice. honest, I do sometimes talk to Larry. Like, I'll walk in at... He's sitting on a bookshelf, which is in my living room. And I just sometimes walk in at, in my case, 6 in the morning. And I'll just be like, well, that was a tough one, Larry. But I made it through. <laughs> I love I that. do that. My son's uh, my son's elephant, um, Mr. Wrinkles, is still he's still kicking around the house, and I, quite often I'll walk in and I'll be like, "Hey, what's up, Wrinkles? How you been?" Like I'll just talk to him, like it's nothing. Oh, that's the way it goes. You know, can we talk about stuffed animal technology and how it's changed? Sure. Uh, yeah. Do you, wait, are you talking about how like they still make just standard? Flushed animals, but also you can get ones where they talk to you and like the arms move that kind of. Oh thing. No. no, no, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of like the interactive robotic ones. I just meant like they've got like memory foam in them sometimes now, and the fabric on the outside is so perfectly soft, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I don't. Well, have I, you hugged one? No, I have one. Oh, hug one. Like a I really a, super soft one. I, uh, you know, Kirby, like Nintendo. One of the yeah. last things I ever bought, the little pink puffball from all the old Nintendo games. I love Kirby. Mm-hmm. One of the last things I ever bought with my employee discount at EB Games was this basically memory foam Japanese giant Kirby. And when I sit in my bed and read comics, it's what like I prop myself up with because it's so it's perfect. 
plushy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and Callie just got one from her boyfriend. Just gave her. Uh, it, it's like a duck, but it's shaped like an egg. It's big, like it's probably two yeah. feet tall, and it's like it's great. And I hugged it, and I was like, "Oh, it's a duck." And my son was like, "It's a chicken." She's like, "It's a duck." And I said, "Well, though, if it's a duck, we got to name it Mickey." And she's like, "Why Mickey?" Because <laughs> I wasn't. We well, can't call it Donald or Daffy. Like you got to anyway. That's too basic. Uh, I digress. Right. Okay. Are you okay with teddy bears? We've all had the precious ones. The worst feeling though, I remember we were in a Costco and my daughter lost at this tiny little pig stuffy and nobody turned it into the lost and found. Can you believe that? Oh, that's awful. Losing your precious plushies. So what we did was we went out and bought like five of them. And so we had like backups. <laughs> Good idea. In case it ever happened again. Yeah. This story, though, of a lost precious plushie is, uh, has a good ending. The little girl named Naomi lost her special teddy bear that she'd had since adopted from an Ethiopian orphanage last year. Very special. She thought it was long gone after she forgot it along a trail in Glacier National Park in Montana. Amazingly, Ranger Tom. How perfect is that name? Ranger Tom Mazarisi, a bear specialist in Glacier, spotted the stuffed bear. Ooh, nice diet. Soaking wet and sitting in melting snow, he saved it, cleaned it up, placed it on his truck's dashboard, uh, his unofficial mascot, and then this happened. For close to a year, Teddy sat proudly front and center on the patrol car dashboard, helping keep a watchful eye out for bears and other wild animals. Over 5,000 miles, I would think. A lot of driving back and forth and and uh, spent a lot of time with the bears. This is probably in my career in the park service, including Yellowstone, has been the busiest year for bears. Fast forward to last week, a family friend of the Pascals happened to be hiking in Glacier National Park and noticed Teddy sitting on a patrol car dashboard. They just happened upon this this ranger truck randomly and, and her niece saw Teddy in the dashboard and and they texted a picture of Teddy to my wife, Addie, and said, is this, the, is this the bear? And she's like, yeah. Soon after, Ben and Addie broke the news to Naomi that Teddy was coming home. I bet um, excited because I didn't know I was going to have to see him again. <laughs> a few days later, Teddy was express mail to the Pascal family home in Jackson, Wyoming, back in Naomi's loving arms where he belongs. You got just like a little bit excited, I think, just like a tiny bit. A lot. How cute is that little kid? Uh, oh, my, <laughs> my heart. <laughs> That's great. You feeling feelings? Yeah, well, it's just like, that's a nice kind of story. Long lost teddy bear. Like, that's a Pixar short film right there. Mm -hmm. What just happened? Yeah, yeah. so much so that even I'm feeling slight feelings. Get out of here. Yeah, can you because he's in the big room. It's because I'm in the yeah. big room, yeah. He's feeling his feeling. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> only one feelings. he has. <laughs> well, a family friend uh, bought another stuffed bear uh, from Mazarisi. Uh, he named her Clover, he said, because she reminds him of a grizzly bear he saw in Yellowstone National Park that would lay on her belly in Clover Patch and eat. So, Ranger Tom still got a bear as a replacement. Young Naomi got her bear back. For me, I just wanted to acknowledge the amazingness of a year later. Yeah, a whole year that you, this You think kids forget? Just had it. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. New way. That's Not going to forget. That is cool. All right. I love that. Are you okay? Are you okay with airport security? Oh. No, no. I mean, I am. I mean, they, they serve a great function, and they should, yeah. but 
I don't know. Again, I talk about my Catholic guilt. I always feel like I'm doing something wrong, even though I know I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's kind of, there's like anxiety I get, even if you know that you've done everything right, you feel like something has gone horribly wrong. And it's, it's very aggressive, I find, airport security, but they have to be. So I don't ever really get mad at them because they're doing their very important job. But yep. it is every time you go to the airport, it's like, crap. Security before the night, nice flight. I forgot about yep. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's different wherever you go as a guy who flies a fair bit. Airport security in Ottawa is totally different than it is in other cities. I don't know if that's because it's Ottawa or that's where Transport Canada and all of those other places are just down the road. It's very different in Ottawa. Transport Canada deals with a lot of crap from travelers every single day. The best one that I ever saw was actually in Atlanta, not Canada, where they had a big glass case of things you can't bring on a plane. And there was scissors, right? There was like a hunting knife. There was all kinds of things in there that you can't bring on a plane. And there was a chainsaw. (laughs) That when means at some point somebody tried to bring so a chainsaw tried. on a plane. Yeah. You know what? I'm not going to do anything. It's just my chainsaw. One time I, I was that. doing the uh, the, the uh, check-in uh, at the kiosk in Vancouver, and I was going through it really fast because I was running behind, and I accidentally oh, selected no. yes to having all of Fire that arms? stuff. <laughs> All of that stuff. Yeah, they came running over immediately, and I was like, I'm really sorry. I, I selected the wrong. Yeah, it was pretty immediate. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay, so going to work and having to deal with a guy like this, though, especially if you're a security person, would suck. First, here is the headline from CBSN. It's a free country. Man threatens TSA agent's life, throws checkpoint stanchion, strips naked, and masturbates, charges the state. And yes... All of that happened. Here it is. This Minneapolis man is facing charges after TSA workers say he threatened them at Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. The Hennepin County Attorney's Office says Frank Towers told a TSA employee he was going to kill them, then ignored officers' commands to move away from the checkpoint, swinging at them and continuing to fight as he was arrested. The TSA says surveillance video from around an hour prior to the checkpoint incident shows Towers punching and headbutting TV screens at the airport, taking off his clothes and touching himself. His charges include assault against a peace officer and making threats of violence with reckless disregard for risk, both felonies. Sounds like it wasn't the only guy getting assaulted there in that one. Um, Yeah. He also had at least three charges and other criminal cases still pending. (laughs) Like, what goes through his mind? At what point does he go, oh, I'll show you? (laughs) Yeah, sounds like a nice guy. Sounds like he's really thought this stuff through. It's a good reminder, though, to be nice to airport workers and all employees in aviation industry. They have been going through hell lately. Uh, It has been very, very difficult. I can't think of a better chance to just be kind and pay it forward. This is Global's Redmond Shannon. There's something in the air that has passengers causing disruption. This flight from Los Angeles to Atlanta was diverted after an off-duty flight attendant became unruly. At one point, the pilot called out for help. And then you hear the pilot from the cockpit going, if there's any large men on board, please come to the front of the plane immediately. We have a crazy passenger. One week earlier, a passenger allegedly tried to storm the cockpit on a flight from Los Angeles to Nashville. And the week before that, a Southwest Airlines flight attendant lost two teeth 
after an angry passenger punched her in the face. Oh, my. Jeez. Well, the worst thing I've seen was the guy in front of me's credit card didn't work for his Ryan Coke. So that was it. So I offered to pay for him. And then the WestJet flight attendants said, no, 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 don't worry. We got this to the guy. And because I offered to pay for his, they gave me one for free, too. How's that for customer oh, service? That's, that's as right. bad as it gets. But I like Wait, to fly, though. I fly quite a bit. You fly a lot. And I'm wondering, okay, so for me, I bring a laptop on. You know, I get I got two bins maximum of security. But when you mm -hmm. fly, you've got mm -hmm. all your equipment. You've got the mics, the headphones. How many bins does it take for you to get through security? When I fly to Ottawa, that's a good question. When I fly to Ottawa, I don't put any of the broadcast gear under the plane. Yeah. Uh, only because of the fact that I've never lost a bag. I worked as a, a tech ramp guy stacking bags on planes. So I have all the confidence in what happens there. And, and I've seen what can go wrong and how hard they work to get those bags in the plane. So I have the full confidence in that. So when I travel, here's uh, some, want some radio secrets? Here's radio secrets. I have a microphone and mic stand. I keep all that stuff in Ottawa. Monitor, extra laptop. I used to travel with three laptops. Now I keep one laptop in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. So I have my MacBook, which works as my desktop on the monitor when in there. And then I've got this one laptop that, because we do the show from home, that gives me access to all of your phone calls and lets me move stuff around for that, calls, texts, all those things. I yeah. take that. Then I have this connection thing that is what you're hearing me on. That's its own thing with its own crate. And I have another thing which allows me to connect when I connect to the radio station, I don't go off the air because I have three separate connections running at once. So I take all of this in a backpack. It all fits in a backpack, nice and neat. I do travel with a digital mic in case I ever get stranded. And all of these things, I'm six bins. Six bins. I'm that guy. Oh I'm the guy where God. they're like, oh, if you... If you need another bin, grab a second one. And I'm like, I'm going to need seven because <laughs> I have a coat, right? But you can get smart with it. If you can learn what shoes don't have a metal shank in them, and you can get belts that are plastic and elastic that just clip together so you don't have to take those off, those little secrets make getting through security that much easier. So, yeah, I, I literally go laptop, laptop, phone, broadcast gear. And I've learned to take the microphone out of the bag because apparently on an X-ray, a digital microphone – looks really really mean and nasty it's I can, dense I can see that. metal right yeah so about that. seven i'm that guy if you see someone oh. with seven totes in front of you uh filling up those totes in security of the airport be nice to him because it could be me <laughs> damn well i mean at least you have a good reason at least you're not like one for my coat one for my shoes one no, for no. this like you've got you have a reason it's just uh, wow so okay i'm feeling enlightened thank you oh Neat. thank you are you okay? Okay. Now, I just got this notification from the school about my daughter. So let's go with this clip that's completely out of context to get started oh, with this wait, little storyline. Wait. Oh, don't. Uh, wait. Don't yet. That clip is uh, not in there. What are you talking about? It's I right got to grab it. Nope, it's missing a clip oh, in that story. Yeah, no, I'll grab it. You know what? Fifty-two seconds. Push pause. Yeah, you know, you know what you get for that. We're gonna give you one of these. Yeah, that's a typo. Seriously, that's a clipo. Oh, I see what you did. Okay. So, how's everyone doing? 
this is kind of like if you were a truck driver and you forgot to start your truck. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty rookie. Oh, no. This would be more like forget your map. You know, we can move on to the next one, Ryan, and just come back. No? All right. So how you doing, Brandon? How you like the big studio there? Ah, it's great. I feel the power. Yeah. I feel the... It looks good. Yeah, yeah doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. You look good in there. Yeah. I got it. Okay. I got it. I had to edit it again and everything. Well, <laughs> I well, did I hope it. Someone, someone has a uh, there. fire extinguisher to help us with this little dumpster fire of an Are You Okay episode. Shall we go with the clip? Are you ready to go? Let's go completely out of context. Because it's clearly a surprise what we're up to. Hit it, yes. Sheldon. Hi, Marcy. Leslie. Are they finally teaching you parks people how to read? <laughs> oh, I guess not. It's a movie. You're pretty cocky for someone whose job is obsolete because of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Hmm. You seem to have a $40 late fee on a book called Mysteries of the Female Orgasm. No, I don't. Yeah, you do. And grab the movie. Go, 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 go. Punk-ass book jockey. What is that from? That's Parks and Rec, one of my favorite TV okay. shows. There's like oh, a yeah. feud between the Parks Department and the library. And it mm -hmm. just immediately came to mind with this story. There's a pretty good chance you or someone you know has a book right now that needs to go back to the library. Now, some of us are forgetful. For example, some of us forget to put the audio clips into the stories when you work on the radio. Others Great example. just forget to take their books back to the library because they really love books. This book was mailed back to a Kentucky library after 50 years. It's actually in quite good condition. The book was sent from Georgia, along with an apology note. 50 plus years past due, checked out in 1968. Sorry, Dale H. The book was actually checked out so long ago, there's no record of it. We became automated in the 1980s, and so any stuff prior to that, you know, there's, there's no, you know, we don't have any history on stuff that was checked out that far back. But the library appreciates the return, and it's clear the book was well taken care of. It doesn't have any markings or stains or... Anything else, you know, to indicate that it would have been, you know, gone for, for, for that many years. Now, the big question is, will Dale H. face any fines for being so late? Well, the library charges a 15-cent late fee for every day a book is late. That means Dale's tab would be pretty high. Roughly $2,700 would be the, the late fine. Ow. Ooh, that's kind of cool. I like that. That's neat, though. Um... Everyone who has a book that's over from the 80s or 90s is going, phew, they can't find me. Now, that story from Lex 18 is really good, but this one is Bonkers, State, uh, Stately Timber by Rupert Hughes, an adventure story set in Boston. Should have been returned to a library in Dunfermline? Dunfermline, I think. Dunfermline? Dunfer Dunfer yeah, there's a lot of British words in this story. Are you sure that that's the right yes. spelling? No, 100%. Sure. Go on the BBC right now. I'm telling you, dump okay. for line. Yeah, I'm telling you. Says the guy who forgot to put in the audio. Okay. <laughs> it was returned this week, 73 years late. Donna Dewar. Hey, I have Dewars in my family. Maybe it's my family who did it. Of Dunfermline, Carnegie Library and Gallery said, I burst out laughing when I opened the parcel. I couldn't believe it. She added, for a bit of fun, we worked out how much it would cost in late fees. It comes to 2847 pounds forty four hundred dollars 
According to the BBC, it arrived with a lovely letter from the borrower's daughter who was able to give us a bit of detail. In the letter, the borrower's daughter explained her late father had lived in Thornton in Fife in 1948. She said she would never have known whether he simply forgot to return the book or he chose to keep it. Fun fact, the Guinness World Record for the most overdue library book is held by one returned to Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge University. It was borrowed in 1668 and returned 288 <laughs> years later. Oh, my God. Wow. What book? That's amazing. I gotta find what that. book? Yeah, I don't what know. Do think? Uh, they said Probably 15 a cents a day, right? Yeah, for that specific American. So let's just say it's 15 cents is the average. Yeah, so that's the standard. Like if you're that's if you're standard. working standards, um, that works out to $54.75 a year times 288 years. We're not going to grade inflation in this, you know, from 300 years ago. $15,768 in late fees. Oh, it's a good thing your, like, descendants don't inherit that debt. Yeah, I was going to say, generations of debt. This is the Shift Podcast. Dan McTagg is joining us here on The Shift as he does to touch in and see what's going on. Normally, we talk about the world of energy and all those things. Uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy is uh, Dan's group that that he uh, takes a stand with. Now, this conversation, I can't think of anybody uh, better to talk about what's been going on. Because we normally would talk about Line 5 and what's the impact if Line 5 goes down in Ontario. Well, here is a fantastic example of how important... Everybody who works in electricity, who works in natural gas, who works in all of these resources that we get delivered to our houses every day, BC Hydro, right? How many times in, have we heard about BC Hydro folks working on Christmas Eve to try to get power restored so everyone can have Christmas morning, right? These people are on the ground working at the best of times, let alone right now. Dan, how are you? I'm fine, Shane. Uh, just glad I'm not in BC right now. Boy, oh boy. Oh, and our heart goes out to everybody. The, the amount of water is staggering. Um, and for those who don't know, if you're just tuning in here to the shift, like we're talking uh, towns underwater. We're talking towns that never used to be islands are now islands. Uh, it's heartbreaking, Dan. You're a former liberal MP. Whereas, you know, when you worked in politics before, whether it's your riding or not, when these things happen, that must be. Uh, a helpless place to be and at the same time such an important place to be to to make decisions yes and you know i remember as a member of parliament uh 20 years ago when the same thing happened in quebec when uh the great storms of course created uh you know real havoc and and and, and sites that had not been you know really considered uh, sites that had never been seen before with uh, massive amounts of flooding and mother nature uh really lashing back uh this is of course, something that uh, I, I think is only, you know, we're into day two or three of this now, and it appears that uh, things look a lot worse than uh, originally thought. Uh, we knew there was a, a storm coming in, but, uh, you know, we've seen this before in 2019, storm barreled through Vancouver. It was uh, brought a lot of precipitation with it, but nothing on this kind of a scale. And so it, uh, it, it is uh, very hard rendering in terms of, you know, uh, the, what people are having to go through. And, uh, you know, one, one, even from this part of the country, prays and hopes that 
uh, things will uh, will be better despite the uh, the damage, the physical damage, uh, as well as uh, the loss of life. Yeah, and how terrible that's going to be, um, as we've heard now of people who have not made it through this. Yeah. We um, infrastructure is so important, and we often throw away conversations about infrastructure as being so political, right? Uh, governments are building infrastructure to raise jobs, and we hear it as an economics conversation. We don't often hear it as a, I guess we hear, do hear it as a safety conversation. We don't often hear it as a lifeblood conversation. And w- you know what we're seeing here is a good reminder of the lifeblood conversation of the basics of infrastructure and the people who work to maintain it every day. And the fragility of the system. Um, you know, we, our best efforts don't always lead us to the ability to be absolutely invincible against the powers of nature. And so uh, for people who are working around the clock to, you know, to get this thing back up and running, to uh, to let us all have a better understanding and appreciation of the various forms of infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, uh, you know, energy infrastructure, which you alluded to, uh, all of these things that uh, we may not give a lot of thought to, but on a, in moments like this, a real reminder that uh, Canada is still very much uh, uh, a harsh country in which to live. Uh, yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's magnificent. Uh, but it also uh, pits us very much against uh, the powers that uh, that be in terms of, uh, you know, uh, weather systems and other events that uh, that can uh, be larger than life. And, you know, of course, uh, in the days that go ahead uh, of this, uh, you know, leaving many of these places as not just islands, but, uh, you know, what will happen, you know, in terms of pricing, uh, supply chains. What's happening in British Columbia is going to have a reverberating effect across Canada. And make no mistake, if we thought that the supply chain factors were ser- serious before the events of this week, uh, they just got a whole lot worse. And I think for uh, all policymakers, uh, it's time to uh, put our minds and heads together to uh, to make sure that we uh, mitigate uh, this significant disruption, uh, not just, of course, in energy infrastructure, but also, as we mentioned, transportation and now, of course, rail. Well, one of the things that this makes me think of was the last time that I got mad at a snowplow driver for being too slow on the highway, right? And you're like, this is so inconvenient for me. Get out of my way. And in moments like this, I realize it's not snowplow trucks that that are, are coming to save the day, but it does create quite a grounding rod to look at things. I wanted to, you talk about supply chain. Imagine this, if you're in Ontario, imagine Kingston with Ottawa on one side and Toronto on the other side, right? Um, if you're in Alberta, imagine Red Deer with Edmonton on one side and Calgary on the other side. So just to give you some some context of what that looks like, what's happening in BC right now is Kelowna is sort of, sort of halfway between Calgary and Vancouver. Kelowna, it's closer to a lot closer to Vancouver. Kelowna gets um, most of their food. Kelowna and Kamloops get food from Vancouver. That's where it comes in the trucks. So now it's been a couple days and some of the stories we got from yesterday were grocery sales are pretty bare and yes, can the food come from Calgary? Yes, it can. So if you're in Kingston and Ottawa gets off, yes, the food can come from Toronto vice, you know, and so on down the line with Edmonton, Calgary and Red Deer, but it doesn't just happen that way. The food's not necessarily there right now in order to be able to completely change the flow of products to be able to make dinner tonight. That is how baseline this is and what we're seeing now are holes in the coca so big that i can't imagine and i'm not an expert i'm not a civil engineer 
I can't imagine some of these things being fixed in in three months, let alone six. So this this really disrupts the flow of all things. Well, it does. And it doesn't just stop with that. Uh, even if you were able to get through emergency bypass and other ways in which you can get around this, which I can't see being possible in a short period of time, um, you know, what kind of energy are you going to use to get there? When you think, for instance, of the Trans Mountain Pipeline having cut, you know, shut off for the purpose of ensuring that uh, it it wasn't compromised, it's still not up yet. And as of this time, uh, you know, would it mean, uh, you know, over the next several weeks, if uh, the roads are not made passable, uh, or if, for instance, they were, would you have the diesel? Would you have the energy? Would you have the fuel to be able to truck? what it is you were taking from Vancouver to Kelowna, as an example. So it just makes and compounds and makes a bad situation that much worse. I, I sense that uh, the disruption, uh, you know, is, 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 is massive and it, it demonstrates uh, the intricacies uh, and the fragility of our infrastructure in this country. And uh, I'm not seeing any clear way out of this. Obviously it is a very much a state of emergency uh, the mulling over the declaration of that, I think, involves basically the federal government working with uh, uh, local on the ground individuals uh, to assess and to determine uh, the extent of the damage and what uh, can be done. But I don't see for a minute a scenario where it, you know you would not have to bring in the Canadian Armed Forces to help uh, in this kind of Herculean effort at getting things back to normal as quickly as possible. Well, some of the things the government did do a great job was getting the helicopters in the air, getting people moving. Yes. Um, now, depending on the situation, I'm sure there were places that needed helicopters sooner or more of them, but it was active. It was happening. It, time will tell how well it was dealt with, but I think it is worth saying positively to the federal government about showing up about the CAF in BC, uh, doing uh, some pretty quick work anyway uh, to get things going, which is, which is interesting. When we look at... Uh, BC is a bunch of islands, really, is what it is. I mean, the, the, these cities are separated from each other, usually by mountains and passages like that. So we understand the impact of this. If I'm living in Vancouver today, what is the impact of losing? Because we've lost roads, we've lost trains. Uh, you know, some of these, and I'm going to be clear, some of these things may have changed by the time we have this conversation, because some of these things are changing so quickly. Yes. So. You know, when we say this road's closed or that one's open or this train line's closed, this pipeline's closed, might have changed by the time, you know, we do yeah. this because it's changing so quickly. So please allow us that forgiveness. But in the spirit of this, in Vancouver right now, you have um, ships coming into port and no trains to get it out of there, no trucks to get it out of there. Trucks could go through America and back up again, which is probably going to be the only way they could do that. Um yeah. But gasoline, like there's, I can't imagine, how do you get gasoline into hope right now? Well, you don't, uh, and you can't. Uh, it would, you know, I think uh, for, for, for all of this, um, it is the disruption of supply uh, and what we do as a normal course of events that uh, makes, uh, makes deploying any type of uh, activity almost impossible. Uh, I, I start, of course, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline only because it really is the proverbial um, aortic artery for fuel for Vancouver. And it's important as well for some of the oil that uh, U.S. refineries use. Now, they can bring some in from 
you know, the uh, from from the Pacific, uh, it's possible to have vessels diverted. But uh, Vancouver plays an important role in terms of uh, the Pacific Northwest energy um, matrix, and for that reason, uh, it's now going to become a, a bit of crunch time as American carriers are themselves going to find not only their roads can potentially congested as we're trying to get around because of the disaster, um, it's likely to lead to uh, you know, much higher prices and scarcity and shortages. Uh, my concern here is not just the price. I think we can get around that. We can understand that. But uh, for Vancouver to see a massive increase in prices or more importantly, uh, to see you know perhaps a third of gas stations running out in a worst case scenario, uh, I think would uh, would probably make more than just a fine point of what's happened. Uh, it's likely to uh, make any type of transportation uh, that much more challenging. Uh, so we are still dealing with a crisis uh, that I think is unfolding as the hours go by. Um, I'm sure much smarter minds and people involved with this kind of emergency preparedness have contingency plans. Uh, but, you know, when you lose uh, communication uh, in terms of uh, transportation, I should say, and you also lose uh, part of your ability to move goods, uh, not just because you're physically frozen, but because of the inability to get, uh, you know, adequate supplies to get those trucks moving, you have a far more serious problem on your hands. Yeah, and it's not getting warmer at nighttime. Um, and we can translate this to all topics. I mean, groceries, you know, the basics, all those things. Um, yeah, like it's it's Sky's a staggering look. Yeah, it really is, right? And this is where the gratitude of all these people that are working right now really kicks in. The Yes. You know, sometimes when you're at work and, and everybody's a little bit overworked and then someone calls in sick and they're off for a day and everything just falls apart because, you know, some – businesses call that efficiency. Um, but everyone's basically running on, on empty. They're, you know, hanging on by a thread and look how hard these people are looking to clear roadways, to look for, uh, victims and, and, and some of the flooding and make sure that everybody's okay. I mean, we're talking about sides of mountains that slide that are going to push a car off the road that nobody would even know the car was there and it's going to be pushed so far away like it's hard to find. This is how traumatic all of this conversation is. So for everybody who is working to get power back and working to make sure that natural gas lines are are safe for everybody and and make sure that roads are open and clear and you know, I just I can't bring that up enough uh, to do that. Those people still need tools to do their working with. I know that this is just a curiosity question Dan is that we always hear in America that they've got these I don't know. I always, I always imagine them being like mountains filled with gasoline, like this emergency reserve thing. Now, it doesn't really help us here in this particular case because Vancouver, at the best of times, deals getting into Vancouver deals with some of the hardest terrain in general just to get there. Um, and if those if those main arteries are are cut off, then it doesn't matter if you have a reserve or not. But do we have any of those? those mitigation structures, those contingency plans, those backup systems in Canada, or is this one of those things that we've just never dealt with? Uh, we've never dealt with it, and there's always been a means to get around it. Um, Vancouver's supply of, uh, of oil and gas is probably uh, about five or six days. Um, and unless you can get the vessels to divert to bring in fuel, um, it's not hard to do that, uh, but it does require... Uh, some logistical finessing, as well as uh, the willingness to pay a little bit more. Uh, 
um, it does mean that, uh, you know, there is going to be more than just a, a bit of an inconvenience. The bigger issue is the trade, the back and forth trade. I mean, we're not just talking about what pipeline we're, you know, and the food supplies disrupted, uh, electricity being disrupted, but natural gas as well. Um, uh, at this point, I haven't heard from Fortis as to whether or not uh, the extent to which uh, the disruption or the potential disruption or the need to uh, to take uh, precautionary measures uh, will be a temporary one or a permanent one. And as I said, I, I, I would expect that that could be very similar to what we saw a few Thanksgivings ago when the line did blow up and it created a significant problem, not just for Vancouver and for all of us trying to stay warm, uh, but also for the, uh, you know, Washington state refineries uh, who also produce uh, a lot of the local domestic regional uh, energy that, uh, uh, that allows our economy to, uh, to keep humming. So I, I suspect uh, we don't have the equivalent of a strategic petroleum reserve or an oil reserve, uh, and we don't have a gasoline reserve. What we have is several days of just in time. And, uh, you know, clock's ticking. Um, if nothing improves by Sunday or Monday, uh, part of the contingencies and emergency management will have to take into consideration things like rationing, like it or not. Uh, that's exactly what uh, would likely be a scenario uh, that would have to develop uh, at some point. Uh, because you simply would, uh, you, otherwise your economy will grind to a halt. It's staggering. It's so staggering to think of all these things. And there's there's one story that was on globalnews.ca yesterday. It just says, no highways to get me home. So imagine this, we talk about trucks. We've talked about being able to truck things and move things by rail. Um, this report says that there's more than 100 truckers trapped in Merritt. Yeah. Uh, as of earlier in the week, because they were working and they just have no way to get out. So... <laughs> Um, you know, this is, so that even takes those trucks off the table for being able to help yeah. out at times like this. It's, um, it's a vulnerable time and it makes me think back to when the pandemic hit and it came back to the uh, PPE stuff, masks, yeah. the basics of those things and global economies and the benefits that come from it. But boy, oh boy, the drawbacks, I don't want to sound like Canada we should, should be so protectionist, but part of me goes, yeah, we got to take care of ourselves here. Well, yeah, and I think we have to uh, be a little bit more mindful that uh, we've had it pretty good. Um, we haven't had these major disasters, and they certainly don't happen every, you know, five days. Uh, but this one, I think, is one that has uh, has everyone standing up, and and for for all the reasons, uh, it doesn't matter where you are in the country. We shared uh, the efforts made by those in British Columbia who are suffering and those who are struggling to get things back up and running. I would expect that some of the other provinces, neighboring provinces, Alberta, even Ontario, where I'm from, will be offering significant help in the days to come. Um, but for now, uh, it's uh, you know it's certainly something that uh, challenges all the contingencies that uh, that one thinks of, and it certainly causes guys like me to think, "Hey, it's a great country, but uh, don't take what you have for granted." Yeah. Yeah, it's, isn't it true, right? It's not, um, now is not a time for politics and grandstanding. Now is a time to truly look at our community of Canadians and go, okay, this is like bad weather events happen and they're going to continue to happen. So let's acknowledge the Canadians that are working their butts off to fix this and make sure everybody's okay. And exactly. let's truly look at how Canadians live our lives and make sure that when bad weather events like this do happen, um, we are able to have some um, a seatbelt, if you will, to stay with the notion. You've got it. Cushion in, in tough times. I think that's what we need. That's what's developing. But 
this uh, will be another lesson learned for all of us. I think, uh, you know, the resilience of Canadians, uh, I think, will be tested. And I think uh, the resilience of Canadians uh, will uh, will prevail. It has to. Um, but it's a mind. We have to be mindful that we, you know, we, we live in a world in which, uh, despite all the certainties that are there, we still have to deal with uh, with the uncertain. Uh, and, and you know, life is not uh, always linear and easy to handle. But in this case, uh, uh, you know, hats off to the uh, to the those involved on the front line in, in British Columbia and uh, let's hope the rest of the country uh, and I know it will will come to rally to help where it can and how it can including its leaders well we got time because it's going to take a long time to clean it up so let's get it started Dan McTagg Canadians for Affordable Energy and uh, just taking a stand with all Canadians around all of these infrastructure pieces of this conversation thanks Dan great to be here thanks This is the Shift Podcast. Open the cage, let him out. Andrew C. Ferreira is here on the Shift to talk about the science. Andrew, how are you? Uh, I'm okay. I mean, I'm a little bit better than uh, the people on the ISS who have been scared to their willy-nillies. Yeah. Uh, for the past few days, I can tell you that much. But then again, they are in space. So, I mean, you know, that is pretty cool, but... I'm not sure I would trade my position if it was in the last few days. You can't complain too much if you're in space, I would say. Um, Andrew is a former producer here on The Shift and part of the Shifthead family. Back to school, getting an education and doing all the fun things. But in the meantime, still a nerd. So here we are talking about forever, forever a nerd, forever a nerd. So what happened here, Andrew? There was a Russian military test where they fired lasers, which it wasn't lasers, it was like rockets, at their own satellite to see if they could blow it up. Now, that in itself, concerning. The other part is (laughs) the debris from all of this put others in danger. Tell us about it. Yeah, so earlier this week, late last week, it came to light that uh, Russia launched uh, what the cool kids call an ASAT. Uh, or simply um, anti-satellite weapon or an anti-kinetic anti-satellite weapon. Sorry, ascent kinetic anti-satellite weapon. And that's basically big scientist, large brain talk for here's a missile and it's going to collide with this satellite. And the satellite is going to shatter into many pieces. And I know on the cover, that's kind of like, oh, eh, how else are you going to deal with you know old defunct satellites or whatever? Um, you know, if the prospect of firing missiles into space doesn't scare you, you know, whatever, I guess. Um, but the big uh-oh, oopsie-doopsie with this um, is the altitude at which this collision occurred. Um, that's even before getting into the whole ramifications of space junk, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but the fact that this collision generated um, literally thousands of pieces of debris um in earth orbit uh in between approximately the orbits of about 300 kilometers up and about a thousand so the 700 kilometer belt above the planet right now where there are brand new itty bitty pieces of russian satellite whizzing around at you know 25,000 kilometers an hour um it's essentially like somebody let go of uh remember when arnold schwarzenegger dual wielded those miniguns it's kind of like that (laughs) That's what that's what that orbit kind of looks like now. And it was already very crowded um, with the numerous satellite constellations that have been going up. Uh, SpaceX is the main contributor to that. But there's also Amazon's OneWeb and a couple of other smaller ones. Um, space is getting crowded. 
um, and, you know, emptying, you know, your 400 clip minigun barrels into the uh, upper atmosphere is certainly not going to help. Um, and so this has actually posed such a danger to the International Space Station uh, that on multiple orbits, the astronauts on board had to take shelter um, inside of their descent vehicles. And the reason they needed to do this was in case the space station was compromised. Um, you know, things traveling at 25,000 kilometers an hour. I'm not sure if you remember this, uh, but a few months ago, the Canada arm on the space station got a hole punched clean through it uh, from a piece of space debris. Luckily, the arm essentially passed right through, didn't hit anything vital. So the Canada arm is still completely functional. Um, but that was before this collision occurred. Um, now there's thousands more pieces of debris you know, as big or bigger than the piece that punched a hole clean through the Canada arm. And at, you know, 25,000 something kilometers per hour. Uh, if one of those things punches through the ISS, it's going to be like, you know, hot knife through butter. It'll just pass right through. So that's why the ISS astronauts had to take shelter in their descent vehicles. Because, you know, God forbid, should something happen to the ISS itself, they need to get out of Dodge pretty quick. Yeah. Um, so for a little while they, um, took shelter and then, and as the debris cloud kind of dispersed, um, in orbit around, um, around the planet, they were kind of, I don't know, you could say the alarm was reduced and they were able to come out of their descent vehicles uh, and more or less continue, uh, their science as it is. But this is just kind of the long, you know, it's another adage in the tale of anti-satellite weapons that are making, um, space crowded for lack of a better word yeah um and it's not as effective to like you have in your car with your 3m hood protectant to protect from rock chips i mean there's nothing that they can really no. be done around this eh? no no these things are 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 supercharged bullets you know orbiting at thousands and thousands of kilometers per hour um it puts normal bullets to shame um these things will you know they will cut clean through you know multiple inches of metal that's crazy um so there's obviously widespread condemnation coming down because this is an extremely reckless act um and there's also reports and i can't you know i can't substantiate these whatsoever this is just the rumblings i've seen on on a hashtag space twitter um but there are reports that roscosmos the russian space agency and the russian ministry of defense were not in communication uh so there may be evidence that roscosmos actually had no idea that this test was even happening wow because if you think about it, why would Roscosmos sign off on something like this when there are Russian cosmonauts on board the International Space Station? The uh, the satellite test directly put them in harm's way as well. Um, so it's a bit, it's unfathomable almost that this happened. Um, as of right now, you know, the ISS is lucky. No, no real impacts, nothing, you know, bad has happened. Um, but there's now just that much more debris out there. And with that much more debris, there's that much of a higher chance of one little piece of debris nicking one other piece of little debris and uh, starting to create more debris. And that's where, you know, the popular culture uh, Kessler syndrome comes in. Isn't that crazy to think? I mean, you know, they, of course, when Trump was president, they talked a lot about Space Force, which got all the space people excited. But really, there is no space police, is there? And there's nothing to no. stop anybody from doing whatever they want out there there's just a loose kind of collections uh, a loose kind of collection of international treaties that govern basic essentially etiquette um for space um and up until you know now essentially or even right now space is such an 
you know, an unobtainable, unachievable thing for so many people that it doesn't need to be any more than a kind of a loose collection of treaties. Um, but as space becomes more and more democratized, and I know some people will shake their fists at me for that word, um, but as space opens up to more and more people, um, there's going to have to be a lot more kind of looking at, you know, what are the things that we can do uh, in terms of safety in space? Space is already a horrendously dangerous place. Uh, there's radiation, you know, there's the cold vacuum of space. Uh, there's ascent and descent and all the dangers that come with that. Uh, and now every day there are more and more pieces of, you know, little bits of shrapnel orbiting the Earth at, you know, 25,000 kilometers an hour. Um, you know, if you've ever watched the movie Gravity, um, it's, it's a dramatization, of course. It's not uh, a Kessler syndrome type event or like a runaway kind of debris forming event wouldn't happen in the span of, you know, 25 minutes. Um, it would, you know, in real life, it, it would happen a lot more slowly and we'd be able to kind of see it coming. But once it starts, uh, we don't really have um, a way to deal with it right now. There's plenty of organizations and the European Space Agency is top of mind uh, that is working on uh, spacecraft and technologies that can help deal with space junk. Um, a lot of the newer satellites uh, actually also have like deorbiting rockets so that when the satellite's end of life comes uh, on the ground, they can or, uh, you know order the satellite to re-enter Earth's atmosphere to burn up without littering space. Um, but for a lot of older satellites, and that's what the uh, the target of this um, anti-satellite weapon uh, was, uh, don't have that capability or that technology. So the only way to, you know, effectively dispose of them is either to do what Russia and this isn't just Russia. The U.S., uh, China and India have also done this before, uh, much to the consternation of many. Um, but the only way to really do that um, is either with missiles which, you know, creates a lot of bad stuff. Uh, you did mention lasers. Lasers are a technology that could be used for this. Huh. Um, and they're theoretically a much better technology because they wouldn't create clouds of shrapnel. Um, and they wouldn't be nearly as destructive. Or they would have to quite literally send somebody up there um, and, you know, kick it down into the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and that kind of technology is just, we don't have that yet. Hmm. But okay, so is this now conspiracy theory, perhaps, is this one of those moments of, um, yeah, well, it was decommissioned, so it needed to go away. Look at us being responsible, not leaving space junk in space. By the way, we've tested our new weapon, right? Like a bit of a disguise oh. for what's really happening. What, what, are, what are the uh, space nerds talking about here? Well, I feel like it's irrefutably, you know, kind of, a, it's irrefutably a demonstration. Right. There, there's no way this isn't. This is such a like a bare faced thing to do. Um, sure. Perhaps, you know, the satellite, you know, is maybe, you know, maybe it was in a weird orbit and they wanted to deal with it. But this was the completely wrong way to do it. And the only logical reason that I can think of for using a missile for this task, rather than either letting it deorbit naturally um, and just simply advising the space station and other authorities about this object's orbit. Uh, is to prove that they could do it, hmm. right? That's kind of the the my takeaway here. It's less about they're trying to be, um, you know, responsible. No, you don't. You know, you're not responsible by creating, you know, a one hundred fold amount of debris in space, yeah. right? This is, you know, in my opinion, uh, this is simply just Russia saying that we can do this. Um, you know, 
uh, earlier this year, I believe it was India who raised a stink because they did something like this. Uh, like I said, in the past, the U.S. has done this. China has done this. We, they've all demonstrated this ability uh, to and deorbit is one word, but here's another word to attack satellites yeah. in orbit. Right. Um, and as much as, you know, war may or may not, you know, traditional war in the sense of, you know, mass armies on the ground may or may not be a thing of the past. Uh, you know, the new era of war is the first thing that will be targeted is stuff like uh, GPS communication. Yeah, totally. Internet. Um, you know, telecom, yeah. right? All of these things that we rely on in outer space will be, you know, if uh, in in a way, kind of the, the front lines. Um, well, those those internet satellites that that SpaceX is putting up there, they're really small, so that works in their benefit. But I mean, if you wanted to control things, what if you could just obliterate all the internet over northern Canada before you attacked northern Canada, so nobody could tweet about it, right? Like, I don't know. I don't want to sound too conspiracy, but you get what I'm saying. Well, no, yeah, and that's absolutely part of, you know, war games, if you will, right? Since we've been able to have, a, you know, a widespread telecommunications network, uh, one of the key pieces of infrastructure that you always look to target first is communications, right? Always been and that way. Exactly. And so it's natural that as, you know, technology evolves and we rely less and less on ground-based, you know, cable-linked telecom and more and more on satellite internet and similar technologies, that the realm of, you know, space domination, if you will, which is part of the reason why Trump established the Space Force, um, of course, that's going to come to front of mind. And so every single time we see one of these um, kind of events, it's another reminder that, you know, this isn't some kind of far-fetched, you know, futuristic thing. Um, like I said before, uh, lasers can be used to deorbit satellites. Right. There is that technology. Has it been tested in like a real life scale? Not to my knowledge. But yeah. theoretically, it totally could have. Been. Well, why else would a bunch of billionaires want to go to space other than to develop the technology that would uh, allow them to sell that to other governments? Right. I mean, that to me is just very apparent in what they're doing. They call it space tourism. But in reality is they're testing to sell stuff to the government because that's where the money really lies. Uh, Andrew C. Ferreira, uh, space debris, space rockets. We've got about 90 seconds, buddy. What else is on your mind? I just want to talk about um, a neat little blog post that came out of uh, Mastin. Mastin is an aerospace company. Uh, they're one of the big kind of uh, private companies that's making a push for um, landing on the moon, which is now delayed to 2025, by the way, at least. Um, but one thing I never really thought about was landing and taking off again from the moon is going to have to be a thing. We've only, you know, ever had the Apollo missions where it's kind of one and done deal. But you've probably seen in the footage how there's this cloud of dust that comes up. Mm. Uh, lunar dust is very bad. It's very sharp. It's very irritative. Um, it gets everywhere. Uh, but what Mastin is proposing is having its landers uh, kind of drop down to the surface. And right before it lands, it'll drop its very own um ceramic landing pad before it lands so that huh. it lands on a ceramic surface and can take off so that it minimizes the amount of dust that's blown off of the surface and thereby minimizes potential damage and i just thought that's the problem i didn't even realize was a yeah, problem okay. until until now but now i guess they're developing spacecraft that can make their very own launch pads that's neat that's cool to think that um that that's the the way they've got to look at it we never thought about that um right Plus, recyclable. Why not be re reusable, right? Let's go. go. Let's go eco on the moon. On the place that's not green, we'll go green. There you go. Love it. Andrew C. Ferreira, uh, thank you so much for the weird science, brother. I appreciate it. Uh, good luck in class this week. Uh, thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.